Hey, hey, what's up, everyone? This is Antonio Neves, and welcome to episode 44 of the Best Thing Podcast. In this episode, I have a dynamic conversation with performance psychologist Dr. Brett McCabe. He works with some of the most elite professional athletes all across the world. He helps them identify those blocks that get in the way of excellent performance and helps them build breakthrough solutions that drive massive results. Listen, you're going to want to listen to this episode. Before we go any further, though, I just got to remind you that you can text me anytime at 310-564-7124. I would love to hear from you, hear what you think about the show, what guests you would like, what subjects you would like me to speak on. Go ahead, send me a text. That link is in the show notes. If you have not already, I invite you to subscribe to the podcast, to review the podcast, and share this with someone you know and love who will get a lot out of it. And lastly, I just want to say thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in every single week and showing your support, showing your love, showing your encouragement with emails, with the tweets with the Instagram messages and beyond. Thank you so much for listening. And without further ado, let's get to episode 44 of the Best Thing Podcast with Dr. Brett McCabe. Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where we talk to thought leaders, creatives, authors, and entrepreneurs about how sometimes the best thing to happen to you is the most unexpected. Welcome your host, Antonio Neves. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where I talk to people about the best thing to happen to them that doesn't include the traditional markers of success. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm a speaker, author, and coach. And each week, I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. This week's guest is someone I was connected to by Ben Newman, a previous guest on the Best Thing podcast. That episode right there was fantastic. But let's be clear, when Ben Newman recommends someone, I listen. Dr. Brett McCabe combines his championship experience as a national championship winning athlete with his clinical training as a psychologist to help competitors in all arenas break free from their patterns of struggle reframe their respective mindsets, and experience massive results. He's been trusted by the top athletic departments in the country, including, get this, three national championships as the performance psychologist for Alabama football, working with the most elite professional athletes across the NBA, PGA, and NFL, and Fortune 500 organizations. He helps them identify the blocks that create performance frustration, and build breakthrough solutions that drive results. And what makes Dr. Brett's process unique is that it is not a one-size-fits-all approach. Dr. Brett McCabe, welcome to the Best Thing Podcast. It's a great honor. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. You know, the first question I want to ask you, and I think it's really important for our, our listeners to know that, you know, you're a collegiate athlete at LSU, a powerhouse when it comes to, to baseball and so many other sports. And during your tenure as an athlete at LSU, you were a four-year letterman and a member of two national championship baseball teams. We just mentioned your work you do with top performers, the work you do with um, athletic departments like at the University of Alabama. The question is, could you do the work that you do today 
if you didn't have that championship background and the pedigree of competing at the top level? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't know. I'm glad I don't have to find out. How about that? Um, I've been fortunate enough. My coach uh, led a program to five national titles in 10 years. I've been fortunate enough to be around Coach Saban at Alabama, who's won six national titles. One had the system, my coach. He has the process. I don't know any other way. And we every day would have meetings and we would talk about the individual procedures and processes that we would go through as players. You had to graduate to play, meaning you had to work through the mental struggles and to find your own way. You had to understand how to get yourself in and out of trouble better than just being, coach, trust me. You had to know what you were doing. You, no man was bigger than our system. Working for Alabama, it's the same way. And, and so when I look at that and I think, okay, who else has had that experience to be in both? I don't know. Um, I, I don't know if there's anyone else that's had that experience to see those many national titles from two men that are so similar. But I also work with gymnasts in the gymnastics program at Alabama. I work with basketball and volleyball and, and so many factors. And then on the PGA and the LPGA Tour. And so I try not hard not to say, oh, when I played, I thought this way because I'm not playing at their level. And my professional athletes, they're doing things I've never done. And so what I try to do is understand their psychological fingerprint, their way of doing things, their unique experience, and have them teach me. And so I try to bring – the way I like to look at – look, I'm from South Louisiana. We cook a lot in cast iron pots. Great cast iron pot can withstand the heat, just like our mental side. But it, every time we cook in a cast iron pot, it just illuminates every previous thing we've ever cooked in it to bring the seasoning into that dish. That's how I like to see my mental game as well as working with individuals. So I don't know if I'd want to find out if I could have done it without, but I'm very thankful to have had it and, and been a part of it. Yeah, my hunch, though, is that it adds a level of trust, if you will, when you're interacting with that athlete, whether he or she is 19 or, or 20 years old, or you're sitting across from Coach Saban or someone else, them just knowing that he's been in the trenches uh, builds some trust. I think it does. I mean, the good news for Coach Saban was my coach was his athletic director at LSU um, near the end. And so there's that relationship. And I'm sure they butted heads many times in that athletic department like any great coaches do, right? But to be able to sit and, and talk and say, look, this is how I learned to find the angle. I wasn't highly recruited. In fact, I was only recruited, and I use recruited by a very loose terminology. I had one offer, and that was to go to LSU. I was a late bloomer in high school. In today's world of hyper-specialization and early identification, I didn't grow until my senior year. I only played one year of varsity baseball. Um, I didn't come on the scene till April of my senior year. And Coach Burtman, who was my coach, gave me that opportunity. But I went there with the opportunity, knowing I was going to redshirt my freshman year, knowing I probably wasn't going to play my sophomore year. But by the third year, he thought that the maturation would have hit. So I was very fortunate to be around those programs and also not be the traditional recruit. I, I haven't been... The game didn't come easy to me. The game came late. When it came easy, I lost it very easily. And that's probably the greatest you know, learning that I had in that moment. But I think working with an athlete to say, look, I've lost my mechanics. I lost them completely. I got into what I call Suckville, where I felt like everything was going against me. I felt like I was constantly failing to live up to my expectations, live up to my potential. I was the game was punishing to me. I've been there. I've been in those depths and I worked my way out of it. So I think I think that gives a little credibility. I think that also gives a little trust to say I've been in those dark, dark places where I hated the game and I wanted to quit. And I didn't want to go to practice 
and I was looking on a way out as fast as I possibly could. Yeah, it's fascinating for you to, to hear you say that, especially where you are now in your career, the evolution that has happened, because I'm, I'm about to say something that's going to make you laugh, I'm sure. When you were playing collegiate baseball, how many athletic departments had performance psychologists? Oh. So if they were in the throws, they were in the depths that yeah. you were just talking about that you could actually <laughs> speak to someone. Very few. In fact, what was a breakthrough for me is I went to somebody on the outside in, in Baton Rouge. This was a guy who was from Northern Ireland. He he didn't understand baseball at all. He was a hypnotherapist, believe it or not. And my parents were like, hey, why don't you go see this guy? Now, my coach was very invested in the psychology, but he did it. He would bring in and study and read and learn and use videos and and have a system that he worked with. We would He would communicate with some of the leaders in the field, like Dr. Ken Revisa or some of those types. But and he was going to coach. He coached the 1996 Olympic team was the year after I was done playing. So we had some of those resources, but nobody. Um, if The only way you got to see the psychologist at LSU is if you were having some very disturbing issues. And so when I was on internship, I did my internship at Brown up in Rhode Island and I called coach and I, we were talking, he was the AD at the time. And I said, coach, um, you really need to put a psychologist on staff. And he said, you know, Brett, look, I, I just can't afford a $60,000 a year salary we're maxed out. And I said, coach, in 10 years, it's going to be a heck of a lot more expensive than $60,000. And I've always had this vision that the psychology that we work in, and we, and we come at it from different angles, right? And, you know, you have somebody like me who's clinically trained, who sees things in one direction. And then to use our good friend, Ben Newman, and another, who's more of a motivation and, and a mindset, right? There's room for all of us. And sometimes in our field, we, we get a little territorial. That's why I love working with Ben. We're not territorial at all. There's, there's, we're a buffet that's available for the player. And if it's a John Gordon book or it's you coaching or me coaching, or they watched a video on players tribune or something like that, that inspired them. Beautiful. But I told, I told everybody about 20 years ago, I said, look, in 20 years, you're going to see departments within high, within college athletics where it's not one person, it's 10 people. And what you're seeing now at the university of Alabama, we have an entire new sports science center that was opened up right around COVID time that has multiple offices and it has unbelievable recovery training for all athletes. And it's focused on the psychological and the physical recovery and training of athletes. And in the next five or 10 years, you're going to see many more in, uh, resources invested there, even at the smaller schools, because of the importance of the mental game. It's no more, it's just the coach to give them a good pep talk. It's to dive into the unique psychology because the kids that are coming through the college ranks today, they're different. They're different than you and me. It's not bad. They're not good. They're not worse. They're just different. They they don't have to wait because the, they can get on the phone immediately and find an answer. If they, they struggle to them as a sign of weakness, not a sign of overcoming. So they see those different things and we have to learn how to coach and really understand them at a higher level. So universities have said, well, wait a minute here. We can't assume our coaches have to know the X's and the O's and all the other factors and also the human psychology. So now they're involving that and the best coaches in the world, that's what they do. They're not afraid of outsiders coming in to help them. And uh, so the one to that point, one thing I would say is psychology is always falling 10 to 15 years behind strength and conditioning. You know, when I was playing, probably when you were competing, you went to your strength and conditioning coach to fix a problem, right? Oh, you have a bad right hip. We're going to strengthen it. Now kids come up and they're coming to college. They've had a 10 or 15 year experience with a strength coach. Like they're doing it from the time they're kindergartners, right? Well, it's not corrective. It's constructive. That's what psychology needs to be. It can't be, it can't be seen as corrective anymore. We don't need to wait for the house to be on fire. 
And I tweeted something the other day. I said I was walking out of getting my teeth cleaned. Um, even people from Louisiana do that. And um, <laughs> and living in Alabama, we do that quite regularly. And I walked out and I said, why do we have? Why do we go to the dentist twice a year, but we can't go get a mental health checkup once a year? Like this is mind blowing to me as a clinician. We go to the dentist for prophylaxis care, preventative maintenance, but we have to wait for somebody to be hurting, to be stigmatized. And that's at every level of every organization we work with. We've got to change that. And I think college athletics is such a wonderful fourth rider or pusher of that that we need to go into. Sorry. Yeah, you, so no, you, bring up, uh, you bring up a really good point, especially, especially when you talk about corrective versus constructive. I've been, I've been coaching now for about 10 years in many organizations. And I can still remember even just 10 years ago, if someone got a coach, it was because they've been doing something wrong. Yep. They've been struggling. And now to your point, now people are getting that. It's it's, it's a bonus. It's a benefit. That's yeah. a sell to come work for us that you're going to be able to work with the coach. And I want to pivot gears a little bit, but not too much. You mentioned the word mindset while you were talking. If anyone goes to your website, they'll see the word mindset. You can look at the books and the talks that you deliver uh, all across the country. A question I have, and I'm really excited to get your perspective on this, Brett, is when we think about mindset, is it, from your perspective, synonymous with mental toughness? Because I'm seeing those two things kind of being used interchangeably. Do you view mental toughness and mindset the same? Not a big fan of the word mental toughness. Okay. And I love the people who talk about it. So this is not a knock on them. It's just personally for me. Because mental toughness, there's really only one answer. I'm not. Okay. I, I Over the last couple of years with my own journey and my own anxieties and stresses I've had in my life, um, growing a business. I love what I do and great family, but I've spent a lot of time reading like Ryan Holiday's work with the obstacle is the way and the ego is the enemy. It's life-changing for me. Yesterday, I spent some time on a podcast with Stephen Hayes, who's the founder of what we call acceptance and commitment therapy. He's a psychologist. Those are the factors that have been very important to me. And so to me, if we look at mental toughness, it's an element of mindset. A mindset though, is we're really going to be the way we can boil it down is either we're approachers or avoiders. Okay. We either react or we respond. Approachers are avoiders and reactors. They're not bad. There's nothing wrong with them. It's just a style, right? But they tend to see stress as a negative. They see stress as, oh my gosh, I can't deal with this. I need to alleviate the stress. I got to get out of the stress. I don't want the consequences to dictate to me my future type of thing. And the problem is a lot of those decisions that we are made, we want safety first. We want security first. We want certainty first. And we can't have that in life. And that's the difficulty. It can function. It's not terrible. It's just you got to deal with the consequences. The responders or the approachers are the ones that say, I can face any challenge. And those challenges are going to make me better. Those challenges are going to help develop me. So mental toughness is, I, I like the word more resiliency because it's about staying in it and staying with it. But one of the big light bulb moments that came to me is somebody who tends to be a little anxious and somebody who tends to worry about the future, despite the fact that I coach many people that I tell them, you know, how we're going to help them manage it is, is to realize that there's nothing that I'm going to face that I can't face. Doesn't mean I'm not going to not like it. Doesn't mean that the consequences aren't going to suck. Doesn't mean that it, but, but I can stand up to it. I can face it and take it because what I find is for most athletes, when we talk about mental toughness, the vast majority of kids today and athletes today, and this is at every level. So I take kids. It's anybody younger than me that's competing. Okay. I'm 48, but it's that we rarely give a hundred percent of what we have. And I know Ben talks about this a lot. You got to give a hundred percent of what you got, but there's a reason for that. The vast majority of us don't give all of our stuff because there's a part of us that's saying, but what if I give it all and I fail? What does that mean about me? 
that I wasn't categorically good enough. And that's scary for an athlete to say, you know, I, I did everything in my power and just fell short. That dream that I believed I had, that joy that I was going for, I'm just not good enough. But what happens is because we hold back, we don't empty the tank. We don't give everything we have psychologically. We don't we don't recognize and, and allow ourselves to experience the sacrifices. When we come up short, we don't leave with disappointment. We leave with a little bit of regret. And that regret is I knew that there was more there and I just couldn't access it. So that's the reason why I'm not big on mental toughness because it's very hard to ever fully give everything we have. So what I want us to do is learn to do that and learn to try to be fully invested and accepting the consequences. And, and that's accepting to me. Like an athlete cannot walk out on the field and not be accepting of a loss. It has to happen. It has to be in the solutions. It has to be in the concept. It has to be in one of the outcomes. Okay. If I can handle that and I can walk off the field and still know that I gave everything I had, I can be gutted, sad, disappointed, angry, everything. But if I can accept that, then I have nothing else to try to prevent. If that's the worst case scenario, then I might as well give everything I have to try to solve and overcome and adapt and adjust and pivot to make it and make it work. The problem with that is most of us, because we don't give it our all, are trying to validate our worth, our value, our strength. And so we we unwind ourselves to be more protective. Yeah, I love that answer. And you did two things that I'm thinking about right now. There's this term I like to call earned sadness. It makes me think about when you send a kid to summer camp. And of course, when you that day one, they don't want to get out of the car. They don't want to go. Yeah. But then when you pick them up two or three weeks later, they're sad that they're leaving, right? Yeah. They, they earned it. So that's what I'm hearing you talk about when, they, when the person leaves the field, even if they lose. But also you just unlocked something for me, Brett, because as I, you know, of course you read books like Mindset by Carol Dweck and you mm -hmm. think about this fixed mindset and this growth mindset, but you just reframing that for me, hearing approachers and avoiders. That's, mm -hmm. that's just a whole different lens for me to look through that. And I think the listeners are going to see that a whole other way. Is as well. So, so thank you for that. Well, and, and let me, let me add one more thing too, is if, if you're an avoider, that's okay. I mean, I, there's certain facets of my life that I'm going to be, uh, I want to make sure all the data is working and there's others where I'm going to push through the door and figure it out on the other side. The one thing to think about to your point is the biggest driver of fear that we have in our life and competition in life is uncertainty. We don't know. So what happens is we try to predict, we try to identify, we try to, you know, look for common trends. And so that's where the approach avoid comes. If we feel comfortable, we'll approach. If we don't, we'll avoid. And my answer is always, listen, you probably have the tools. So let's, let's not wait. Okay. Let's not be afraid to push a little bit and deal with it. It doesn't have to go according to plan. In fact, you're so good at what you do, you can adapt and adjust. And I, and I tell my athletes all the time, I don't want a pilot that can only fly in good weather. I want a pilot that can fly in any weather. Because I want them to understand he or she can maneuver, figure it out, make the right choices, and not think I'm only good on beautiful days. Like how how weak, how how limited are we if we can only play when we feel good, when we have our stuff, when we feel confident, when we feel full of belief, when we feel like our coach loves us? We we got to do it without that. Yeah, you got me smiling over here. I was talking to someone the other day, and we talked about how about this theme of how you wake up is not necessarily how you have to show up because you go wake right. up in a bad mood, bad attitude, but how you show up can be totally different. And you just said something that took me back. You said it doesn't have to go according to plan. When you say that, Brett, that, that for me that creates freedom. Yeah. That means I can go. Let it, it doesn't have to go according to plan. It takes me back to my ten plus year television career in New York City. 
And I tell you, when everything went right on that live television broadcast, that was one thing. But you really kind of found out who you were and the ride got a lot more fun when that guest canceled at the last moment or there was breaking news. That's when we came alive. That's when the so, creativity comes up. And it's the, like, yeah. it's like, ooh, let me do this because now there, because the circumstances changed, it gave you the freedom and the it gave you the permission to perform. And for a lot of athletes, and I had a conversation with one of my professionals this morning. I said, you are stuck in the mode right now as a dancer. She's not a dancer, but I said, as a dancer where you're trying to do the steps, the music comes on, you can't hear the music because you're so caught up in the steps. And as a result, you look robotic. I need you to dance to feel the music and to give a little creative license. You know, the thing about the uncertainty that we're competing in our life, 2020 is a perfect example of this, right? Everything is turned upside down. Everything is unique. Have you ever thought of why the symbology of this year is 2020? No, tell me more. Think about it. What is 2020? It's beautiful hindsight. So Ah. for me, I'm looking at this and saying, what is this year forcing us to do? It's forcing us to look at ourselves deeper. And it's also forcing us to look at the future in a different way. And I'm not talking about the political race and mess that we're in in this world. What I'm talking about is the fact that everything that we know, the greatest core that was destroyed because of coronavirus was our ability to, to, to connect to other humans. And yet we've adapted our comforts of the way we connect. The 2020 hindsight is when this first started, how many people did we see out walking with their families? They were re-engaging. Okay. So I'm too busy for that. I'm too busy. I don't have time. And then all of a sudden they were. Now we've kind of slipped away from that again. But it's really the, like, learn to see things different. The uncertainty. You know what? We're all really good remote. I don't want to be remote. We're really good at it. You know, to to go back to your old profession in the news media and stuff. It's okay if somebody's sitting there and a cat's walking behind them. You know, it, we used to be like, oh my gosh, no, you got to be a perfect suit. Now there's people there in polo shirts and jeans. And it's like, hey, we're really flexible. We're really good. Roll with it. Just be your best you. And that's what matters the most to us. That's what we have to see differently. 100%. You had me laughing because when all this started this year, I was blown away. I was looking out my window and I was like, who are these people walking around the neighborhood? Right. What? That, it was just amazing. Exactly. Well, I already know this conversation could last forever because there's so many questions I want to ask you, but I already know I have to have you on a second time to go into do it. the other questions. But let's dig into the question of the best thing. Brett, for you, what's one of the, the quote unquote best things that happened to you that wouldn't necessarily appear on a resume or a bio or even come up in conversation that has had a profound effect on on who you are today? You know, it, it was without a doubt. And I'll just give you a, a, a little synopsis of my playing career. So I redshirted my freshman year. We won the national title. Right behind me as we're recording this, I've got a picture with Ted Williams and Dodo Mazio at the White House with George H.W. Bush. Great time, right? As a 19-year-old kid. Came back the next year, got mono, missed that season. Come back, and I'm ready to go. And, and coach had called it. I was going to play great. And, and, and I felt it. I felt matured. I felt ready to go. And then I was in a position where I was really going to have some great success with the team. And if everything had gone according to plan, and I woke up the next morning, I couldn't comb my hair. My shoulder was just locked up and hurting. And instead of doing the rehab, I did what they told me to do, which is rest, rested. It's a, it's inflammation. It's overuse. Okay. Come back. And I wanted to be the guy so bad that instead of listening to it, I've tried to push through it and I got hurt. And, and the, the injury resulted in me changing the way I did things, losing the confidence in myself, the self-belief. I, I couldn't be present with what I had. I was trying to recreate what I had had in the fall. And 
that was the best thing that ever happened to me because in the moment it was extraordinarily painful. But what happened was the next year, so we win the national title that year again, in the thir- my third year, which I thought I was going to be that guy and I was going to be drafted. And, you know, that plan was going to be great. I take that summer, I go play ball, I come back, I'm miserable. I hate the game with a passion. I hate everything I'm doing. I'm having a tough time in school. I'm having a tough time in everything. And um, right before the season started, because I got injured, my parents sent me to this guy to help me, as I talked about. And as the season came around, I started having a little bit of success, but I, I wasn't I wasn't very talented anymore. I'd lost some skill, but I was able to be functional. I was like a good old work, you know, truck. I could get the job done, but I wasn't going to turn heads. And early in the season, um, I came in relief against um, Texas Christian University, and Nolan Ryan was my idol growing up. Well, Nolan Ryan's son is who we're playing against, Reed Ryan. And we dispatch him pretty easily, but we get into the game, and I come in relief in this really tight jam, and I, I get out of a bases-loaded jam. I come running off the field, and my coach grabs me and says, good news or bad news? And I was like, oh, well, good news. I know it was great. And bad news is, what are you going to do, take me out? Which I was okay with. Like, actually, that was going to be cool to me because I was like, I didn't have to go back out and do it again. And he said, look, if you walk the next batter, I'm taking you out. And I did. I walked him. And he took me out of the game. I was so upset. And I'm condensing the story here because I want you, I want the listeners to understand this. What happened was the next day, I went back in a game again, and I did the exact same thing. And he gave me the exact same scenario. And I walked the guy again. And he told me, he said, look, you're just not mentally, you're just not there. You're just not fighting for yourself. I went back to this guy I was working with. And the most painful moment in my life was when I was embarrassed out there and I was disappointed that I was never going to succeed. And he asked me a very simple question, this guy that I was working with. He goes, what do you want? And I said, I mean, I want to succeed. Yeah, but how, what, how, what do you want? And I said, I want to strike out every guy I face, but I don't believe I'm good enough. He said, see, you're trying to not mess up, then succeed. You're trying to make sure it's safe in order to do. The mind doesn't work in if-then statements. It has to be locked into what you want and then you deal with everything else. And I'm telling you to this day, that changed my life because that day was the day that I said, you know what? I'm laying it on the line. This is what I'm doing. This I'm going to strike out every dude I face. I ended up the number one pitcher out of our bullpen. I ended up having a ton of strikeouts and few walks and had a great year and then had a great next year. And if it wasn't for my coach asking me that question and putting me in that moment, coming off of an injury where I lost my identity and lost who I was, my coach challenged me and this man helping me realize the greatest thing was not putting out all the fires, but to stand above them all with the purpose of what I wanted to do. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. Not even close. I was not a psychology major. I didn't want to be a psychologist. I had taken one psychology class in college and it was a miserable experience. And I switched my major after that, never made lower than a 4.0 and just found my rhythm and found the fire, found the drive. And it was all about, and it's what I call a manifesto. That's what led to my book, The Mindside Manifesto, was that was the moment that I laid it on the line and said, this is what I'm going to do. And to this day, I will I will not play it safe. I will do the things. I left a very successful pharmaceutical career to open up my own private practice with not even, you know, I'd just gotten licensed as a psychologist, but my kids, my oldest was starting high school. We didn't have a college fund. I mean, I'm an only child, so I had support, but come on. I mean, I had to go for it. And to me, I'll deal with it. And that was that was the best thing that ever happened to me is that scenario of events. Holy moly. Just 
the individual, how blessed were you to have that person in your life to ask you that direct question that so many people struggle to answer? What do you want? You want to stumble, you want to make someone stumble asking that question. If you want to end an argument, ask someone, What do you want? Because typically they don't know, but you being able to identify that and unlock that. Well, and, and, hearing, go and I'll add one more real quick. So I asked my coach about 20 years later. And eh, about 15 years later, I'm sitting down. His daughter was my mentor in grad school. She was a psychologist as well. And I said, coach, you remember the day you changed my life? I, I wouldn't, I didn't come from bad. Okay. I, I had, I was blessed. My dad was military, whatever, but I was the guy who did everything right. And never got the results because I, my answer was I did everything. I mean, I, I followed the process, right? But there was no, there was no how to win awareness. There was no magic that I was creating. And he said, and he leans back in his chair and he's got a cigar and he says, March of 1994 against Texas Christian University. See, I challenged you that day. And he said, I challenged you because you didn't believe you were as good as you really were. And I had to get you fighting for yourself. Now, he said, a coach, a great coach has to know when to push the buttons. But you better know what your button is and how often you can push them. Because if you push them too soon, you'll lose the kid forever. He said, I waited four years to push your buttons. Four years to get you confident enough to believe in yourself, to actually fight for yourself. So... A couple of years ago, I'd given a talk and he was also speaking at the conference and he laughs every time I tell us that more extended story. And so we had our, our reunion of our first national title team and we're on the field and I was a red shirt. So I'm, I'm a scrub on the team. There's some of my dearest friends on that team and he's going down the list and he walks up and he gives me a big old hug on the field. And he says, you know, why I did that to you. Right? Yeah, I did that to you. Right. He says, I know you tell that story all the time. And I said, yeah, I do coach. He goes, no, nah, you don't know. He said, because I loved you so much and I wanted you to love yourself as much as I did. Wow. Dude, that's powerful. Okay. So that was the best thing that ever happened to me was that I allowed my coach to coach me. Hearing him say, you know, we're just getting you to fight for yourself. And I'm sure right now there's so many people that are asking themselves that question, am I fighting for myself? And not to get too technical. And, but as you mentioned, trying not to mess up and then succeed with all the, the amazing athletes you work with. Is that typically what you find folks in when they're struggling? Mm -hmm. They're putting them, like you mentioned earlier about the dance, the dance reference, um, trying to know the steps. Is that what people are going through? They're just trying not to mess up and that makes them stumble. The, the, the game life experience doesn't matter where you are. And I want people who are listening to this to understand you can have $47 million in the bank and you're still going to have periods of down and and darkness. And it, it, it's all relative. Pain is pain, stress is stress. Okay. So please don't ever look at somebody and say they, they're flying on the private jets or they've they're in the hall of fame and they're not not and they should be happy. Okay. Wherever we are, we experience what we experience, and that is unique to us. Okay. And the I think the thing to realize is that when things start coming at us, they can overwhelm us. And our mind naturally defaults to protection. There's a there's a great line of research from the behavioral economics teams namely Thomas, um, uh, Daniel Kahneman, uh, that coined the term loss aversion. And when we experience loss, our brain goes hyperdrive to prevent future losses. It goes with the idea of if I don't fail, then I can succeed. But the truth of the matter is that's a really bad bias and default that we must override. We, met, we cannot try to eliminate the mistakes. And so if we're sitting stuck in our lives, if we're sitting stuck in our sport right now, I get it. I know it looks like you have a very large hill to climb. I know you have a very large thing to climb out of, but you need to take the next step. You need to work towards the next value. You got to try to win the smallest things. If you can win every moment you're in, if you can start with the smallest wins, I know you want to get on that peak of that mountain, but you don't start Mount Everest on top. You started at the bottom and you work and you get people around you that help you get there. 
I want people to realize that to that point is that you put people around you that will help you and guide you. But more importantly is that you start by looking at the, the, the battles right there and realize that it's all relative. If, if the struggle is getting out of a depression or anxiety that you're in, we start by asking for help. We start by getting up and getting moving 10 to 15 minutes a day. We talk to our doctor. We talk to our families. We ask for help and support. If we want to play better, we start by our approach to the plate our approach onto the court versus looking for 40 points every night. We start by who is the man or woman that's showing up to the court and practice every day. You know, we start little, but we're so impatient as people that we want to hurry up and fast forward it. But the reality is you can't, you can't write the last chapter of the book unless you write the middle and the write the beginning and who's going to show up is what matters the most. Yeah. The last question I have for you is an interesting one. You mentioned earlier about how, you know, you were a work truck, uh, you, you were a work truck and it sounds like you were extremely consistent and your experience is consistency, if you will, underrated. I think, of course, we all want to hit the whole game winning home run or hit the game winning last shot. Or, but I think sometimes what I think society kind of, you don't get a high five for is, is being consistent. You always think about the MVP who has the big numbers, but they don't really highlight that man or woman that sh- that doesn't get injured, that shows up every game, that makes their teammates better, et cetera. And something tells me as you were talking, one thing you've been, whether you're going through struggles or not, was probably consistent. Maybe. I, I think some of it was my dad was a, he was a C-130 navigator in the Air Force. He did a lot of work with the Special Forces. And he used to always say, be the guy that leaves before the press conference starts. It's never about me. I don't want the attention. I don't want, I don't use my clients to market I don't talk about my clients. I don't on any level. Um, for the longest time, I didn't even let people know I worked at Alabama until they gave me a ball that said team sports psychologist, right? And my, wife, awesome. my wife was laughing. Um, the players I work with professionally, I don't really, I don't want them to mention me. I, it's not about me. It's about them. So I think the consistency thing is I want to be the best at what I can do, but I also want to be in the shadows. I, um, I'll give you an example. Um, you ask questions, dude. I talk. I mean, it's just what I do. I love um, it. So we all need to be, we all need to be Batman. Okay. You know, I hear a lot of people in my field say, be Superman, but you know, Superman came from another planet. Okay. <laughs> Batman, Batman ain't got no superhero, su- superhero skills. He's just rich, but he was a rich man on a cause. If you know the best movies ever done, and I'm not a superhero fan, but it's Batman begins the dark Knight, and the dark Knight rises. When it comes to psychology there, that and silver linings playbook are brilliant. Okay. But Bruce Wayne faced the biggest fear the chaos of losing, losing his family in front of him to the chaos of the world around him. Right. And he trained himself. He went and lived with the criminals. He trained himself to learn how to outthink them, trained himself to get out of his comfort zones and understand it. And then he didn't have any superhero skills, but what he did is he had a calling, he had a purpose. He wanted to make the world better. He wanted to make his city that he loves so much, but he wanted to empower the police chief, not himself. It wasn't about him. So he trusted a, a an older man, it doesn't matter if you're an older man or woman, but you get my point. It was a mentor. I can't remember his name, not Alfred, but um, Morgan Freeman's character. And he trusted him to develop the tools and he would use them and test test them. And then he'd go back and make them better. And he would go out and fight crime and then he would leave so somebody else could get the credit. But the thing about Batman was Bruce Wayne had doubts. Batman had, Bruce Wayne had fears. He had struggles. He wasn't happy. But when he put on his suit, trusted the tools for what the calling was. We all need to be Batman, Batwoman and go out there and trust that we do have the tools. And if our tools aren't good enough that day, we go back, we make them better. We reinvest in them and we go back out and we fight again. And it's not about us. 
It's about making the world a better place. It's about making our teammates better. It's about being consistent every day and showing up. It's about doing the things, the little things that nobody wants to look at. Um, I have a pet peeve. You go into a restaurant, if the tables are dirty, why? Like, you know, <laughs> I, won't get, I, I won't get sponsored by McDonald's, but, you know, McDonald's is the number one fast food agency in the world, but their commitment to detail is terrible. You go to Chick-fil-A, it's out, out of this world, okay? They're paying people probably the same amount. They're recruiting from the same uh, employee pool. What's the difference? It's an attitude of organization. McDonald's is number one in the world, but it's just not. I want us to be Batman. I want us to be Chick-fil-A. I want us to hold those standards of being consistent every day and doing the things when it's hard, but it's the little things. It's not the big things. Holy moly. Uh, I know the listeners are fired up because I'm fired up right now. Uh and I'm just thinking about, A, got to be the Batman or Batwoman, 100%. 100%. But holy moly, that advice your father gave you. Hope I'm getting this right. Be the guy that leaves before the press conference starts. That that just yes, that, that just says everything that needs to be said. Dr. Brett McCabe, I can't thank you enough for making time to be on the Best Thing Podcast. Of course, folks are going to want to learn so much more about you. There's going to be information in the show notes. But where would you like to send them to? Best place to do it is at my website, brettmccabe.com. And that's spelled B-H-R-E-T-T-M-C-C-A-B as in boy E.com. You can also follow me on social media at Dr. Brett McCabe everywhere. And look, um, I love to learn. I love to listen. I love to experience. I love to have conversations with you. I've been following you for a long time. So it's a great honor for me to be here. And, um, you know, here's the deal. Let's uh, let's make it so everyone has their next specs thing. Absolutely. And I can't wait to get down to Alabama and get to see you in person. Bring it. Uh, Bring it. Thanks again. You got it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Best Thing Podcast with Antonio Neves. Join us next week for more stories that'll help you see the world through a new lens. For more resources, go to theantonioneves.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.